everyone. Welcome to Sustainably You podcast, your home for creating sustainability as an individual business and as a society to thrive as an ecosystem. My name is Simi and we have Vibha and Philip with us today. Hi everyone. Hello. Today we will be talking about sustaining natural resources. According to UN data derived from the Global Land Outlook 2 report that was published in April 2022, human damage to the planet's land is increasing and with about 40% officially classified as degraded. So today we are going to touch upon non-renewable resources. That is something very different than what you thought a non-renewable resource would be. Did you know that sand is a non-renewable resource? And how about soil? Why is soil degrading with zero nutrition or getting becoming a sand? Let's touch upon all this and more. Um, let's start with land degradation. So take it away, Philip. Yeah, that's a broad topic. So, well, let's talk about it, I guess. Yes. Yeah. So today's episode will cover agriculture, mining, energy, and then we'll, of course, apply zero waste and circular economy principles. Now, before we get started, I want to talk about a philosophical concept. It's called atomism or reductionism. That, that reminds me of the movie Downsizing. Why is that? Because <laughs> in that movie, they, they reduce people to many sizes. Ah, <laughs> all right. So, yeah, this atomism is not about going small, but it's about smaller things. So the idea behind atomism is that you take a bigger thing and you break it down into its constituents. So everything is composed of smaller and smaller things. You break it down further and further till you come to the atom. So this is a Greek philosophical idea, but this idea was present all over the world, in India and in Africa and the rest of the world in ancient times. But the idea is that you break things into its constituent components. And then we look at it as individual components. So, for example, we have the Sustainably You podcast. If you break it down, it's three people. We can look at the three people individually. There's Simi, Viba, and Philip. Now, this is a good tool because we want to, and we apply this in science, and this is how science works. We apply this atomistic principle to understand the components and then study how that component works, what it's made of, etc., etc. But the converse of this is holism. And there, a holistic approach, we look at the whole, the community, or the relationships between the, the components. And this again goes back to the ancient dilemma that uh, philosophers dealt with, that is the problem of the one and the many. So is everything just made of many individual things or is everything one? Yeah, so those are very big questions and people are still dealing with them. But today we see the application of atomistic views or atomistic approaches on farming and pretty much everything in our lives. Would you explain it a little bit more? Do you mean if a farmer wants, wants to take care of his land, then he's looking at different things he needs for his land in terms of chemical compositions mm -hmm. and then approaching it that, like that uh, yeah. versus to mm -hmm. creating a holistic ecosystem for his farmland. Yeah. Is, is, that, is that the right interpretation? Yeah, yeah. So, that's, so it's, we apply this atomism in so many ways, in so many areas. So you, the farmer might do a monoculture. So that's another way of an atomistic view. So I do, say, wheat and you do tomatoes, you know. So we are trying to, because as humans, we need all these things. Right. How can monoculture be atomistic? 
we are so when we are looking at it as one component of let's say your menu okay so i take care of just one component and farmer b takes care of the other okay. component now it is efficient so we're not saying this is bad or good at this point everything has its negatives and positives but also when we are coming down to the plants and to the soil we can look at the productivity of the crop and break it down into the nutrients that we are supplying to the soil to the plants as say npk that's nitrogen phosphorus and potassium but the plant needs much more than that and there's you know all these other minerals that we now take as vitamin pills but traditionally people got them from the plants that they were eating and even now we do derive most of our minerals from plant sources but how does a plant get all those things from the soil all of those different nutrients or should we just look so the atomistic way of looking at it is supplying so much of n so much of p and so much of k and then if it needs something else say iron you give so much of iron etc etc that's a very atomistic way of looking at things which is the current way of the industrial farming exactly yeah yes. okay so going to its non-renewable resources so how is that linked so now agriculture is a very big industry it's all over the world and so agriculturalists and farmers they have to purchase and apply fertilizers and so when you buy a fertilizer so you look at uh, what are its components so usually it's an npk fertilizer it'll have some ratio of n to p to k and then they look at the other components they buy those things so now we have to ask the question is that sustainable is that obtained sustainably and is that applied sustainably and so on so we have to ask these questions the farmer has to ask these questions and then we the end user also have to ask these questions So we as as an end user most of the time we just think okay this fertilizers made in the in industries or in in some big manufacturing space and it's cheaper for the farmers to get and it goes into the farm and then we have food i mean more and more people are now getting more more aware of not trying to go towards organic and stuff if that's affordable to them so these fertilizers when it comes to the atomic configuration as you speak where does it come from is it hmm. is it naturally derived from somewhere or is it created in a in a factory what what, what is it and, and do we know like what ratio is needed mm-hmm. for the different types of varieties that we have yeah so the farmers obviously they have to learn all this and make a very educated decision on the type of fertilizer that they purchase and it's dependent on the type of crop they're trying to produce and obviously there's lots of recommendations from government agencies and research and the manufacturers themselves who give these recommendations to the farmers and and then during the life cycle of the crops from seeds to seedling to harvest fertilizers as well as pesticides and so on are applied at different times different periods of their that the plant's life and so you can make measurements measurements on the plant itself uh, say the size of its leaf the color of its leaves or the soil so people test the soils regularly and one test that they do is the ph of the soil is it acidic or alkaline and then if it's not where it's supposed to be they can change the ph by adding more chemicals so that's the way we do things you know 
So where is the link to some of the resources that's depleting? Let's look at the fertilizers. And, and so most of the fertilizers, the, the P and the K, the phosphorus and the potassium and the nitrogen, they have to come from mining. And then it's taken to a factory from the mine and then processed into the fertilizer. So there, there are some paradoxes. So one is that for N, the nitrogen, there's so much nitrogen, we would never run out of nitrogen, right? 78 or 79% of the air we are breathing in has nitrogen, but the plants cannot take any of it. It cannot breathe it in and use it. Neither are we. So the plants have to take nitrogen from the soil, whereas it takes carbon dioxide and oxygen from the air. Nitrogen has to come entirely from the soil. So that's kind of a paradox. Yeah. So the second one is phosphorus. So there's a big question now. Are we running out of phosphorus? So what is phosphorus? Yes. <laughs> phosphorus. Fact. So good question. So phosphorus is named after, well, Lucifer, <laughs> the devil. <laughs> well, it's from the Greek for light, light bearer. So phosphorescence, you know, we have that word in English, meaning illumination. So phosphorus has a tendency to emit a glow in air. But phosphorus is very essential element for everything that lives, at least on Earth. It's in our DNA and it's in our RNA. So the, the phosphate molecule is a component of our DNA. We need many, many, well, a whole lot of phosphates in our DNA. So, and we would not survive without it. Of course, right? The, nothing alive would survive without phosphorus. So, in fact, one of the things that astrobiologists look for, the sign of life in other planets or star systems, is evidence of phosphorus. In fact, they discovered phos phosphine gas on Venus, which could point to life there. But, well, we know Venus is extremely hot and phosphine is a poison. Now, phosphine could come from a living thing that emits a poison. But yeah, at this point, I don't think anything is alive on Venus. But anyway, so phosphorus is a very essential element. In addition, we know about ATP. All living things use ATP for its energy exchange. So adenosine triphosphate, that's the currency for exchanging energy at the cellular level. Okay. So all living things use ATP in another version, which is the ADP, adenosine diphosphate. So it converts from one to the other during this energy exchange process. And so without the, and, and so the, that's the P, ATP, so adenosine triphosphate. So there it is. Phosphorus is a part of life you know, at the cellular level. So then we, we on Earth should have a lot of phosphorus, right? Yes, we should have enough access to phosphorus. Because we all living beings have phosphorus. Yes. Okay. So all of us have light phosphorus and mm -hmm. all of us need phosphorus. So every living thing needs phosphorus. And so you would think, well, we would have lots of phosphorus around. Yes, there is plenty, but they're not easily accessible. And so as a farmer, you'd have to buy it from a, well, a manufacturer or a supplier of fertilizer. So where do the fertilizer company, supplier company, get their phosphorus? Right now, most of the world's phosphorus comes from one country, and that's Morocco. It used to be the United States and some other countries as well, but they're running out. And so now they're concerned that if everybody has to depend on Morocco, that's, that is a, not a very 
good situation because there could be supply chain uh, cuts, you know, due to geopolitics or bad weather or whatever the case. It's not good to be dependent on one uh, source. And how long can we last with just one source? So depending on our usage, current usages and projected usage, the phosphorus in Morocco could last for 200 or down to 50 years. So it, it is a big problem that we have to deal with. So all the phosphorus being mined in Morocco, I didn't know they had this ace card up their sleeve. So all this phosphorus that's being mined there, what is the impact that it's having on the country? Hmm. Because because that means that they are extracting a lot of it and that's got to have an impact on its environment. Yeah. Now, I don't know the the impact on environment in Morocco itself. But I, I know, you know you do open pit mining. And so that takes up a lot of land and it affects the surrounding areas. It affects the uh, the water cycle if, if it contaminates the water table or the runoff water and so on. So it will definitely have an impact in Morocco. And also that it puts Morocco in a, in a good and a tight position. It gives them more clout internationally on the geopolitical stage. I thought we just agreed that every living creature on this earth, including the earth, which is a living thing, has phosphorus. So how are we now come to a conclusion that only Morocco can give phosphorus mm-hmm. and we only have 50 years of phosphorus? What yes. about everything else? All right, so that that is key to how we can conserve phosphorus and recycle it. So presently, Morocco has 70% of the geological mineral phosphate ores, 70% compared to... Which is easily accessible to mine. Which is, yes, very easily accessible. So there may be other sources in the world, but they're not easy and we have to prospect for them. So yes, but other countries are in the single digits compared to Morocco, the US, China, etc. They're like to 1% or less. But yes, coming back to the living things, they all have phosphorus and they all need phosphorus. But the difference between what's in the ground in Morocco is that it's inorganic. It's not an organic phosphorus. So what's in the living things, it's an organic form of phosphorus, which is what the living things want. Industrial agriculture is trying to apply inorganic phosphorus converting it into a water-soluble form and then applying it as fertilizer, which has its negative and positive impact. So when we talk about inorganic and organic, the meaning is living and non-living? Well, phosphorus is part of a bigger molecule where the sub-radical, you could say, the phosphate is part of a a bigger uh, carbon-based molecule that can be easily taken by living things, such as plants through their roots and it has to be water soluble also but that is the organic molecule that is water soluble as opposed to the fertilizer which is in a smaller phosphate uh, molecule in an inorganic but soluble form it is easy for the plant to take it but it has a couple of drawbacks so one is that and that leads us to this problem the phosphorus paradox so what is the phosphorus paradox well, I heard about this from an ecologist in Australia by the name of Dr. Christine Jones. And you can catch her talks on YouTube and on the internet. So she is a, a big proponent of natural methods for conserving phosphorus and protecting the soil. But she explained what the phosphorus 
paradox is. So the paradox goes this way. Now, when the soil gets depleted from intense farming, you add fertilizer. So you add a lot of N, P, and K, especially the P, if you measure a reduction in the phosphorus levels. But adding phosphorus fertilizer to the soil kills the soil, and it reduces the intake of phosphorus by the plants. So you add more phosphorus, thinking that the plant needs more because it's not getting enough, and that kills the soil further. And then it also has subsequent ecological negative impacts. So that's the paradox. So we're using more fertilizer, more phosphorus than is required by the yes. plants. Yes. So it's because of the current methods employed in industrial farming, we need very quick results. We need very high yields. Those are not necessarily bad in themselves. But that leads us to this atomistic thinking in that we think, let's just add phosphorus to the soil because that's what the plant needs. And that ends up destroying the soil, the community in the soil, because soil is a living community. It has several types of bacteria, several types of fungus, and as well as the insects and earthworms and so on. And they work together in a symbiotic nature. And so one, when you add the phosphorus, it makes the plants lazy. They don't grow deep roots and they don't go deep enough to look for the phosphorus and to absorb the phosphorus. Secondly, the roots should not be clean roots. So if you see white roots on any of the plants in your house, that's not a good thing. The roots should not be clean. It should be soiled. It should be dirty. The dirtier, the better. Because the dirtiness is because it's a community of bacteria and fungus. And, and the roots of the plant should be fibrous and branched out as, as much as possible. So it's forming those networks and those relationships. And the bacteria and the fungus are supposed to break down the soil and also transport these minerals from one place to the soil, to the, um, the roots themselves. So they bring it to the roots. So now what happens? A farmer goes and puts fertilizer for whatever reason to get the crops in time, to have healthy crops, have more more harvest, whatever the reason may be. Now what, what is he doing to the soil? What is he doing to the plants? So those microbes that are supposed to produce the phosphorus in the form that the plant can take are out of a job. They don't have a job to do or it hurts them. So they die off or they move off to an another part of the soil that usually they die off and now the plant does not have that community that was helping it acquire this phosphorus as well as the other nitrogen or potassium and the others that that community is gone and it we have a dying soil and the plant is not able to absorb those nutrients and then the plant exhibits symptoms right on its leaves and stem and so on the farmer is only looking at the outside at the symptoms and taking measurements of the ph of the soil and the outside symptoms and thinking, oh, there's a shortage of potassium or there's a shortage of phosphorus. I need to add more of that. And that's what they do. They add more of those fertilizers and that further depletes the soil. That's the paradox. It kills the soil even more. But is there any way to know exactly how much you need to add? Because it doesn't look like it's a scientific process. You know, you cannot measure it. It's not a recipe with exact measurements. So how do you know exactly how much do I have to add in here so that I'm not killing the plants? They're still active. They're still working their roots, but they're still healthy, basically. Mm. Well, so then we need 
experts and people with experience, farmers with deep experience, as well as the farmer community, they, they need to talk to each other. And, and so that we can get this knowledge. And experts, they can do research, they can do a, a holistic, or they can study the plant holistically and see how this the whole phosphorus cycle works within the plant. And then the measurements would give us much more deeper, richer information and a better understanding of when and how much phosphorus to add. In in short, Dr. Christine Jones thinks there's too much phosphorus already added by farmers to the soil for the next 10 years at current rates. And she's looking at the United States, Canada, and Australia mostly. So there's already too much phosphorus added by farmers that they need to slow down. Yeah, so that's the phosphorus paradox. And what is happening to all of this excess phosphorus that is now mm. already in the soil? So that's... The good that's a very good question now this phosphorus or these fertilizers are in a water soluble form and they're not organic they're inorganic water soluble and the soil has lost its living community and its cohesion so the soil is turning into very sandy soil and so the rains or the irrigation itself washes away all these fertilizers into the water table or into the rivers. And from there, it ends up in the seas and the oceans. And along the way, it creates a lot of negative impacts as well. In the rivers, for example, it creates algae growth as well as in the seas. It can create dead zones in the seas. And as in, if there's a lot of algae growth, it cuts out the oxygen supply to the fishes and, and to the lower organisms in, in the water. And they die out as well. So these dead zones are created. So... One thing is we are very fastly going towards the end of natural reserves of phosphorus that we have in earth where we derive this this mineral from for all the crops that's been harvested around the world. So what can be done? So obviously the, the earth doesn't need all that phosphorus, one. Secondly, there must be a natural way to enrich the soil with phosphorus. Is that the way to go forward? Mm-hmm. Um, or what, what's a way to conserve mm-hmm. what's there in, in what's left of the phosphorus? Do we need phosphorus? Because now we, we are coming to a conclusion where phosphorus can be, we can do without if it's naturally derived by the plant, which which should be the case. Hmm. Because as soon as we apply phosphorus, if it's not in a measured way, it kind of depletes the soil and eventually with all the degradation of soil that's happening around the world. Yeah. So what's the way forward? All right. So we can apply zero waste and circular economy thinking okay. to uh, approach this problem. Now, the traditional or the, the current industrial farming, it is expensive to the farmers. They spend a lot of money to purchase the the fertilizers and other chemicals. It cuts into their profits, right? A large part of their income goes towards just paying for the fertilizers. So it's not a very sustainable method in the long run. But having said that, we cannot stop overnight. We do have a market demand for the foods that farmers produce. So we have to work gradually towards a holistic and more natural method of farming. So regenerative farming and permaculture, these are extremely good concepts that we can apply, but we cannot apply them overnight, the profit period. And so we do need the time to gradually phase towards sustainable farming methods. Fortunately, there are solutions. Well, for industrial farming, they need to ensure that the fertilizers are not washed away. 
they can take physical steps such as building obstructions for water to flow away. So th these are physical approaches. There are other methods as well that can stop uh, the soil from being eroded. One of the things that's literally not holding the soil together and rain or whatever water source comes, it wa washes away because the water is not held in. Can it be like adding more or like trees, etc. Mm -hmm. into wherever they are having their crops? Yes. So, so we can have engineered solutions or we can have natural natural and engineered natural solutions. So but at this point, it is the fact that we are using it inefficiently. Mm -hmm. So the use itself needs to be monitored mm -hmm. and farmers need to understand how much of it they need to use so that we are not wasting this precious resource. Yes. Yeah. So that's right. So they, the farmers need to be educated on this. And that's going to take time. So it's good for the consumers to encourage the producers and the farmers to be more sustainable. So that's on one side. Now, on, for the natural mechanisms, we should encourage regenerative farming practices. So a diversity of crops actually helps preserve the phosphate as well as other minerals because they work together and also it builds the soil community. Can you, sorry, I'm, uh, I'll just to add to your topic, I just had a question, maybe you can answer along with that. Can you also add these microbes, uh, microbes, mm -hmm. <laughs> microbes into, into the soil? Definitely. That's also being done. So biological fertilizers, if you will, are being now, that's, that's an excellent uh, approach to doing soil treatment. Yeah. And if every being also has phosphorus in them, then composting exactly would be very yes. important. So that brings us to the natural solution. So if everything has phosphorus in them, so human beings need about two grams of phosphorus per day through their foods. And we have several grams of phosphorus in us. All the foods that we eat, vegetables as well as meat, the they do have phosphorus in them. So composting is an excellent way of returning phosphorus, natural phos phosphorus back to the soil. Now, when we go to the bathroom, our excrements has phosphorus in them. So our poop and urine has a lot of valuable phosphorus that can be reclaimed. Now, in fact, that's how phosphorus was discovered. Was it? Yeah. So the scientist in the 16th century who discovered this was actually looking for the philosopher's stone. And he had <laughs> and he found it in his a own tons book. of liters of urine collected and he boiled it for a really long time. And there was a process that he followed. And then in the end, there was a glowing substance that was left behind. He thought that was the glow was something magical. So he didn't know in his lifetime what this was. But eventually the scientist figured out that. This is phosphorus. That's an awesome story. Yeah. <laughs> so these are, I mean, these are potentially great business ideas. Now, let's talk about the poop first for a few <laughs> minutes. All right. We cannot directly use human excrement. For one, it, it has harmful bacteria that's not very good for the soil. It has pharmaceuticals and hormones and so on. So it has to go through some natural agents, such as other bacteria and fungus and so on to process it in a, into a form that is usable by plants. So yes, yeah, so once the human excrement as well as animal excrement is uh, treated naturally, it can then become a valuable source of phosphorus for plants, for agriculture. Now the urine itself, like you said, it's extremely valuable as a source for phosphorus. So 
that here's a business idea, okay? There are lots of business entities and organizations where human beings go in and make a deposit every day of urine and excrement. And we're talking about schools, malls, airports, hospitals. So they are sitting on a gold mine in their toilets. (laughs) (laughs) So they could supply that and and they contain them you know within uh, within tanks Not in their just buildings that. remember the uranium yes <laughs> they they might even have uranium in very tiny quantities yeah. so i could get paid for giving my urine exactly so yes. you know what i heard this from my my mother-in-law who used to live in dubai in the 80s so she had told me i do not know why why was that the case but in those days the hospitals would come to buy urine buy oh yes so especially a mother yeah so if you are breastfeeding or they i don't know but it could be sold yeah. they, they wanted the mother's urine <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i don't, I, I, I don't know and you would it, it was paid for i do not know what was the use for i maybe research I, I, purposes it could yes, probably very much be to research purposes nutrients. Mm-hmm. yeah there's a lot of but nutrients we're pissing away <laughs> yeah so so I imagine a, a marketing line from uh, shopping malls hey come shop and poop at our malls <laughs> <laughs> no think about the farms the huge farms for animal farms right yes how much of waste is, is, is there yes so they cannot directly apply it on no. the soil so it has to go through several stages of processing with microbial action and then it becomes really valuable now we discussed about Burj Khalifa one time how the Burj Khalifa in Dubai is not plugged into a sewage system yes so they need several trucks to come in uh, every day yes every day to come and suck out their sewage from below Burj Khalifa and take it to a sewage treatment plant well that's gold that they're yes giving away so yeah if uh, somebody at Burj Khalifa is listening to this Mr. Manager or Mrs. Manager or Ms. Manager you could be looking at a valuable resource right there that you're trucking away every day so if we tap into all that naturally available phosphorus even if it's in tiny quantities but can that sustain the need for agriculture or industrial farming the currently the amount of phosphorus they need can it sustain that need I definitely think so because biological systems and uh, and living things need very small quantities. We're talking about grams or micrograms per living thing. And so there is plenty in the natural form for our our current needs. And then we just need to add a smaller quantity from industrial sources and then we can recycle them and we continuously recycle these. So I do think we can have a sustainable utilization of phosphorus. Well, for Morocco and other nations who are producing phosphorus, of course, that's a source of income for them. So they will continue to produce it. But of course, we can, well. But it does give them a monopoly. And and I can only imagine what that does to the prices Mm -hmm. and the supply and the demand. Yeah. And all the small farmers who actually need it would find it very difficult to access it when it's, when the prices are going much higher. So this is why we need to have natural farming methods and natural fertilizers using our excrement and urine and so on and also the farm animals and so on and i think that would make it sustainable i mean we have to talk about the fact that does phosphorus have any substitute or any synthetic replacement replacement that that can be used 
No. Because if we say like in 50 years or 280 years, there won't be any natural mineral that you can dig out of ground that's called phosphorus, then it's non-renewable. Then there must be something that they need to substitute. So is there is there any, I don't know, microbes, organisms that can produce enough phosphorus along with like animal excretions or, you mm. know, whatever we kind of throw out is yeah. enough for to sustain with, with the current and the future need so, without taking... Yeah. So phosphorus is inside the the sand particles. So sand is everywhere and different types of sand. So there are microbes and bacteria that can actually digest sand and release that phosphorus. Yeah. So that is definitely a very uh, potentially valuable method of creating, creating more phosphorus. phosphorus. Yes. Right in situ, in the site itself. Okay. Well, there is good news for a natural source of phosphorus and phosphate that is derived from natural organic material. According to a recently released study from the University of Sheffield's Institute for Sustainable Food, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, they have discovered an enzyme from a bacteria that can help release phosphorus from its organic forms. And so this has great potential and seems very promising. So good news. Great. That's great. That means there's still hope after all the gloom and doom that 50 years from now, there's no phosphorus. Right. That also gives way for new innovation and looking for solution to go away from something that's non-renewable. Well, I would be remiss if I did not mention another great technology for creating soil. And that is biochar. Biochar is awesome. You got to hear about biochar. So biochar is charcoal, but it's just a different form of charcoal. And this is actually an old technology. People in the Amazon, for example, have been using biochar and creating soils that they left left as a legacy for today's generation. In fact, there are people in Brazil are harvesting the biochar that they left were left behind by their ancestors from a thousand years ago and selling them as a product. So biochar is charcoal made from wood or biomaterial, and there are various processes for making it, but we can also make it from waste wood products. And there's tons of waste wood in the construction industry, you know, in people's all kinds of industries that has, you know, waste pallets that are broken and cannot be reused in logistics and so on. So they can be turned into biochar through several processes. And then once it becomes biochar, which is a form of charcoal, it becomes a product that can be inserted into the soil and it helps microbes and fungus grow on the surface of biochar. So biochar has an extremely large surface area. That's the the main property of biochar because it has lots of holes and it's porous and it provides that surface for the microbes to bind on and bring the, the water and nutrients together and turn it into a new form that the plants can absorb. And so it's adding biochar to the soil is like creating a new a marketplace where all these, you know, various entities can come together and work symbiotically to produce new, more nutrients that are released to the plants at their roots. So do check out biochar and it's a wonderful thing. A wonderful it's like product. A, it's like a party. Yes. For all the organisms. It's a party zone for the organisms. And it's carbon capture and storage. So it's it's like so many birds in one stone, pardon the usage of that expression. And is this something that we are using? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. So biochar is now 
available commercially. Lots of people making biochar from waste woods and as well as environmentally friendly sourced wood. And it's being used um, in many parts of the world. And it's really good for regenerative agriculture as well as industrial agriculture as well if they add it to the soil but we definitely need to manage the way we are using mm-hmm. this anything resource more mm-hmm. much better than what we're doing absolutely right now. Yes. so we were talking about land degradation also how it's a use of a phosphate can lead to land degradation how to get renewable renewable resources and it's important to look for renewable resources of phosphate because it's depleting while we're talking about land one of the one of the things that we really also look at is when we talk about depleted resources or depleting or degradation of land is sand so the soil is turning into sand now sand is used in multiple things so mm-hmm. isn't, isn't that a good thing that we have now so much sand everywhere yeah well here we have a paradox So here we are near Dubai, and we're surrounded by all this desert. And Dubai is one of the fastest growing cities in the world. There's a lot of construction that happens here. And yet, we cannot use any of that sand for construction. Why not? So desert sand is not amenable for construction, unfortunately. I mean, this is so sad when you look at all of that sand outside your window and we cannot use any of it. So let's take a step back and understand what sand is actually used for because it's really difficult to mm. think of sand as a raw material yeah. for things. On that, a non-renewable raw material. Yes. Is okay, so are we running out of sand? That is a big question now, that we are running out of sand. Yes. But there's so much sand here in the desert, but apparently it's not usable for construction. So yeah, the, the, that's a good question. What What do we need sand for? Yes. So there's a big difference between sand and soil. And so we discussed earlier that sand is a constituent of soil. And that soil is a community of living things that live on that sand and all the other uh, nutrients and minerals in the sand. So So sand itself, yes, it's just uh, broken down rocks and mineral particles. So can we safely say when the organisms come into play is when the soil becomes living and it breeds and breeds and gives birth to all the plants and vegetations around. And once the organisms and living things leave the soil, it becomes sand. It right. has nothing that's, or it has something. So that's desertification where soil can become just sand and get blown away in the wind and get deposited elsewhere. So how is it non-renewable then? Then there should be actually 40% more sand than <laughs> what it was available a few yes. years ago, right? Yeah, so let's let's look at sand itself. So sand, there are different types of sand, and we all know that, you know, there's sand on the beach, there's the sand in the soil that we grow crops on, and those are different types, you know, they have different colors that helps us identify it. And then there's sand under the water, under the rivers, under the lakes, under the seas and oceans. They're all different in their components and in their chemical constituents. So some of the uses for sand is, of course, the main one for soil building, for agriculture. Another big one is uh, construction. And then, of course, we also use it for getting silicon for our microchips and the solar photovoltaic cells and, and panels. Implants. And the glass. Glass, yes. 
that silicon implants. <laughs> oh, silicon implants. <laughs> I wonder where that comes from. You said silicon. That was the first thought in my head. Mm. Like that. Oh, yeah. So why can we not use desert sand for concrete? And that's because desert sand has been under the been put under the action of the wind such that the sand particles have been rubbing against each other and eroding and becoming rounded in shape. And because of that lack of uh, sharp edges, cement cannot bind to it. Cement needs those sharp edges to bind to within the concrete. And so when you make concrete, you add cement to an aggregate that's composed of sand as well as gravel or bits of rock and um, and then water, and you mix them together. So desert sand, unfortunately, cannot be used for that because so it's round. Sand cannot be used mm. for any purposes? or So desert sand can be used for land reclamation projects. Mm-hmm. And there are many such big projects actually all over the world. So there's in China, there's in Singapore. Dubai has done a lot of land reclamation as well. Mumbai has done it. So it can be used for that only. Okay. Yes. Can it be used for agriculture? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So land reclamation is growing or, or making it uh, usable for plants. And so agriculture would then be possible. And here's the good news of that. Then the soil then starts absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so it's one of the solutions for reducing greenhouse gases. Living soil Mm -hmm. that sequesters the carbon. Yes, exactly. So you're sequestering carbon as organic material within the sand Mm. and the the soil. So coming back to the question about non-renewable sand. So what kind of sand is non-renewable? And what is depleting the sand? So around the world, there is a big demand for construction materials and and, uh, construction sand for concrete and we use that in on on the roads we use it in the buildings and well anything concrete even for dams and canals for carrying water for irrigation even so there's a huge demand for concrete around the world and sand is or construction sand is a big component of that and so there seems to be a worry amongst experts that we are running out of construction sand and where does the construction sand come from well good question so A lot of the sand comes from, in many countries, it comes from the rivers and lakes. And so that has environmental negative impacts. Some of the sand comes from under the seas. And this is sand that has been deposited in the seas through the rivers. And that's marine sand. And so, Simi, you might be more familiar with it uh, in in northern Europe. That's the kind of sand that they use in uh, construction there. Yeah, that's the kind of sand they use to go away from from riverbeds and inland sand deposits where there's less salt. I mean, that's the preferable kind of sand. But then while moving away, because that's that's completely getting depleted, and hence, as we all know, uh, people are going towards mining sand. But the first one of the first things to go away from that source of sand was marine sand. Mm-hmm. The biggest problem with marine sand is obviously it is non-renewable, the same like a riverbed sand. Uh, other than that, it also hugely impacts the biodiversity, the in-water fish community, the coral. So marine sand has a high quantity of salt in it. That means that you need more cement, which can make concrete more expensive. 
because it needs more cement. And cement production, by the way, is, is a big contributor to CO2 production because cement manufacture requires a lot of energy, usually from fossil fuels. And so a lot of CO2 is emitted during its manufacture. So using marine sand would lead to a higher usage of cement and therefore more CO2 emissions. That's why river sand is preferable in countries that have rivers. But then it has its environmental impact. So a better alternative is to crush uh, rocks. And then the rocks are mined from rock quarries or breaking down of mountains. And rock itself is needed in the concrete and, and also for buildings. And, you know, we have granite in our kitchens, for example. So that's rock is a big source for sand. So this extraction that is happening to develop these cities and for the construction purposes is actually having a huge environmental impact. Yes. A lot of it is illegal. Yes. And what it does is that it kills the ecosystem, it kills the aquatic life. Sometimes it uh, makes riverbeds so deep that it changes the courses of the rivers, which mm -hmm. causes floods. Mm -hmm. What is happening in countries like India, even in Bangladesh, where a lot of this activity is illegal, is that it swallows whole villages. Mm. So, so this is not something that is sustainable for no. a long period of time. So it destroys the habitat of the fishes and other organisms in, this, in the rivers. And also it affects the water table in the surrounding areas, because now that the, the river is deeper, the water table goes further down for all the surrounding areas. And it affects the farmers in that area. So depleting the river sand is extremely injurious to the environment. As a result, many governments have stopped it or regulated them. And that creates a black market or illegal harvesting of a river sand, which is a problem in itself. So there needs to be alternatives. Now, river sand does come from mountains from where the rivers originate. So they're carrying all the sediment with them along the way. Unfortunately, where the construction is happening is far away from the mountains. And they need to look for then alternatives such as rock quarries that are closer by to mine the rocks. And then you need a lot of energy to crush them into sand. Um, to the so, right particle sizes. So this is from the mountains that we are crushing the rock. Well, rocks can be also below the ground, at ground level or lower. So there are hills and mountains, as well as, you know, other sources, quarries for rocks. And yeah, so they are good sources for rocks. Now, we need rocks and gravel and sand. So for the aggregate in, in concrete, we need different sizes of these objects. And also rocks are used for other things, such as, you know, in kitchens, we have granite shelves and counters. So there is an environmental impact where the rocks are obtained. They're so, going away yes. from the sand. Yeah. Well, but we, we have to minimize that environmental impact. But it is a better source at this point, I would, I would say. Quarrying rocks is a better alternative than quarrying um, river yeah, sand. Now, looking at marine sand, marine sand comes from sediments transported into the seas and the oceans, and also from the erosion of ocean rocks. And this is a very valuable material for construction. This kind of sand is used mostly in Europe, where they have the, the means to go and harvest the marine sand. 
because it you know it requires boats with the technology the mechanisms to actually harvest the sand so european nations are the ones that mainly use marine sand but marine sand has another problem in that it has high salt content which requires more cement and cement manufacturing produces a lot of carbon dioxide and it uses a lot of fuel and energy that comes from fossil fuels and as a result that has a negative impact on the environment as well not to mention also of course the impact on the marine environment also so that is not a very good source then of course um we as a sustainable sustainably you podcast we want to suggest means methods for recycling construction sand and that is being followed more and more that's being applied more and more in many countries for example here in the UAE they take old construction material they crush it back into sand sized particles and then they reuse it in new construction but it's not a very easy process because as you know when you're constructing a building there are very strict regulations that you have to abide by and so the quality of the concrete will be affected by the poor quality sand that may be obtained from crushing older concrete and therefore many companies are reluctant to use reused concrete sand for new constructions also because the regulations and the laws that are in place yes might not allow the use of such material that's right because it's not tested yes that's not tested so they cannot verify the quality or the the structural strength of the concrete they cannot predict the life of the concrete and so therefore there it's a shortcoming on on both sides you know on the governmental side as well as on the industry side this needs to be overcome yeah so in india they have put in place a law because of this extensive problem of the sand mining that's happening over there and if manufacturers are using building material by repurposing waste they have to pay a lesser tax which is 5 to 12% compared to what you would be paying if you were using non-repurposed waste it would be 18 to 28% almost double so the so governments also need to kind of update mm-hmm. their laws their regulations and incentivize these companies yeah. so that they can change this manufacturing process so there are really good uses for reused concrete in the form of reused sand and it could be used in parks creating walls for compounds for parks or along the side of the streets pedestrian walkways and so on that are on the ground level that don't need very high structural strength or the the regulations are looser and one other thing that I'm really excited about is for greening the deserts now when in the deserts the sand are loose and the wind blows them away so if you can build walls within the deserts that we can build compounds and, and you mean like concrete walls yes and uh, that would hold the sand in place so within those areas confined by the walls you can apply regenerative techniques permaculture techniques to create soil and so those walls help with that retention of the soil now those walls can be entirely made of reused concrete because the structural strength is not that strict you know in, in the desert and they can last quite a long time because they don't need to maintain that shape over a long period of time we just want them to hold the sand down so that's a really good use for reused concrete and especially in a place like Dubai in the UAE where there is a lot of construction and there is a lot of destruction of older buildings and a lot of waste that's exactly. coming out of this construction which would have gone into a landfill otherwise yes. 
does it yeah. usually do? Does it does it go into a landfill, especially the concrete one thing? But then there's a lot of fine. Mm. Um, there's a lot of plastic yep. wiring, a lot of material. Does it really all of it go or does it go to a secondhand market where then it gets recycled? Because I know some countries do that. Mm. It doesn't go into landfill at all. At least few countries that we, we can name. What usually happens with the concrete and other material? So it, it there are a number of factors. One is the the governmental regulations, the the building codes that may be too strict. And as a result, the companies that does the demolition might find it financially more beneficial to just dump it somewhere. And unless there is a supporting industry for recycling the steel and the wires and all that, then it would not happen. So it is a small and growing industry that, that of recycling old concrete. One of the other things that now we now that we established that the source of sand that we we use for different agricultural use or uh, construction is depleting rapidly mm-hmm. and it's only so much it's what's available. So one of the things that we established is to work on reusing mm-hmm. the concrete, bringing in some kind of code of conduct or some sort mm-hmm. of regulations into terms. But one of the other things is going back to basics, going back to constructing constructing houses or infrastructure are the things that they used to do in old days, which used to be different in different countries, depending on whatever is available in that country. Now, that is a huge argument as well people might have that just came into my mind is, mm-hmm. then are we going to deplete those sort of hmm products that they used to make in old times because now it's not the same amount of population so if somebody was building out of seaweeds or or wood do we have enough of that even if it's within the country i think it's also about using a diverse range of combination of different things you you don't want to rely on one source so much that you end up depleting it because at this point we are extracting 50 billion tons of sand. It's literally the planet's second most used resource after Mm. water. So you are completely dependent on one resource instead of diversifying it so that you're not ending up harming the environment. So let's talk about some alternative sources that we can use instead of sand. Instead of river or marine sand. sand. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, we talked about reusing construction materials and well there's all this desert sand in the uh, in the world in the middle east and the sahara and also there are there's beach sand now beach sand is being used but that of course would degrade the beaches so the desert sand would have to be used for construction in some way and we need to figure out technologies to, to make desert sand work with concrete so there are some developing technologies on the horizon, and there are three of them. One is chemical treatment of desert sand to convert them into something that's usable with concrete, with cement. Glass is, for example, produced from sand and some other chemicals. And then crushed glass is sand that can be used. So we can go directly from sand into a usable sand chemically. Now, uh, this is again in the research stage. Second one is thermal treatment of sand. And there's this also is in the research stage. And that's where we apply heat to sand. Fortunately, there is a lot of heat available in the deserts from the sun. So we can use solar concentrators, such as used in concentrated solar power, CSP plants. So that 
technology can be used for treating sand using solar power, the, the heat to make it usable for concrete. And the third is plasma treatment of sand. And the plasma can alter the surface texture of desert sand and then make it more bindable. So instead uh, of round, it can give it edges. Yes. Jagged edges. Yes. Yes, on the microscopic level. And then it can bind well with cement. So those are technologies that need to be further developed and commercialized. And then we would be able to reuse all that sand that's here in the deserts. And there are also some other resources that we can use. There is there's quarry dust. So approximately 25 to 30% of it goes wasted. But this can actually be mixed with concrete and sand can be replaced with that. We can even use things like copper slag which is a byproduct of copper extraction by smelting. And every country will kind of have different resources available to them based on what's happening there in India. What happens is that at the end of the rice harvesting season, the farmers end up burning the crop residue and the stubble, which releases a lot of carbon, CO2, into the air. But this can actually be used into manufacturing of concrete. And we've seen examples of people making bricks out of plastic yeah. bottles even. Mm -hmm. So we do have a lot of different sources available to us now. Yeah, along with that, since you just mentioned plastic, a lot of waste that you find in the landfill with with regards to plastic, paper, or those sort of things can be used into construction and create renewable infrastructure, which can be used again and again when it collapses it like a Lego Lego brick. And I, I would assume that, with, like, like Vibha, you said, with a combination of all the different resources we have, we need to come up with solutions which doesn't concentrate on one area and starts depleting it. And that would probably be the way for the future to make sure that we do not deplete Earth. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of fear amongst experts that we're going to run out of sand over the next few years because the demand for that is going to increase because construction is not stopping. Look at the population. Exactly. Mm. It's growing. We, we, we need to create homes and build homes, but we need to turn to alternative resources. So I am optimistic. So I think uh, the desert sands will eventually be uh, turned into a useful product, including for construction. Especially if you see in the Middle East, in the Gulf region, most construction is short term. It's not long term in infrastructure. So that would be a big one to look into to club together the recycled concrete, how we can use it again into building material. Or, or instead, what you do is you make buildings, you make homes that last yeah. way longer than what they do. That's a way forward for when well, you think circular. Just yeah. a quick note on that. So the Roman concrete it lasts a thousand years or more, and there are still structures standing from the Roman times. So they did use sea sand with lime for their concrete. Yes. So there is fortunately lots of research in concrete as well, using um, salt from the sea to produce new kinds of concrete cement. So we'll see new developments in, in cement technologies coming soon. Like we always end all our episodes with is there is solution to every problem that we have so this whole fear mongering is that the word yes where people just feel like okay now we have to go and find mass and yeah that that's a good idea too but we should be able to and we are finding plenty of solutions and innovations that's only coming out of what our problems are and mm -hmm. isn't that a great place to be oh yeah 
well, I I do believe that we'll eventually mine asteroids, and so I'm <laughs> I'm all for that. And there's okay, plenty yeah. of sand on ice and, and on the asteroids. asteroids. That is a perfect place to end. We as human beings, I think it's our spirit and it's our determination and grit that keeps us going. And that's where solutions come from. We do not stop when we see a wall. We find a way forward. Yes, yeah, so that's why I'm very optimistic about human ingenuity. It's important to keep your optimism up that we will solve these problems. And going back to yourself, to your own consciousness is so very important. To be conscious in how you're using everything in life, not just sand, not just how you do agriculture, but the whole idea of living. It needs to be sustainable and it needs to be prolonged and be able to go from one generation to another. And we should be able to sustain on this earth. Right. And that brings us to the end. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. You can find us everywhere. Speak to us on Instagram. Let us know what you think of this and what other natural resources that are at risk of depletion we should look into and talk about. Do let us know your comments, your feedbacks, what we can work on, what we are good at. If you like us to add any episodes, something you like to hear us talk about, guests you like us to invite, please do let us know. We love to hear from you. Do follow us on sustainablyupodcast.com to catch all the recent episodes. And we're also on Instagram and every other listening platform that you plug in from. Thank you so much, everyone. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you. Always think optimistic and think zero waste and circular economy. Bye. That's Goodbye. That's a wrap. <laughs>